Hey friends, Cable here, and this week's podcast is proudly brought to you by my friends over at Kent Cartridge. Uh, I've got a man, I've got a lot of history with this brand, going back to my college days when I was waiting tables just to fund my duck hunting addiction. That's when I first discovered Kent, and uh, I'd mess around with other brands, cheaper brands, and literally watch the pellets bounce off of greenheads. Uh, I found Kent, and I fell in love. And nothing's changed over the last 20 years except for, well, I'd say Fast Steel 2.0 is even better than the original. And Kent offers a premium shell at a sub-premium price. Check it out. It's Fast Steel 2.0. You can find it at your local retailer. Howdy, everybody. This week's podcast also brought to you by Spartan Forge. Born in war, Spartan Forge was conceived while targeting terrorists Think about that. Targeting bad guys during deployments in support of the global war on terror. We can also use this technology because of its similarities to track mature bucks. Now it's time to get this analysis into your hands. It's military-based intelligence, next-generation mapping. I absolutely love it. And I love the people behind Spartan Forge. They're like me. Second Amendment till the day we die. No exceptions. America first. Spartan Forge. Check it out by downloading the app today. Here comes another song about Mexico. Well, I just can't help myself. I lost my old lady. Got my lures, got my bobbers, now I'm gonna go. Got off in the wrong direction. Found a hooker and lost Good morning, good morning, good morning. So Cable Smith, welcoming everybody into uh, what are we at? episode 644 of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Thank you so much for being here today. As always, it's a pleasure, a treat, an honor to be here talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors and all that implies with you fine folks. So thanks for dropping by. I do appreciate it. Hope everybody is having a, uh, a great dove season so far. I actually, I feel like I'm cheating on the dog at this point. We've gone three times and uh, my truck has been in the shop. So they say that it it's a 2018 Chevy Silverado and literally every sensor is going off. Uh, and when I was in New Mexico fly fishing, it sat at DFW Airport when we had the torrential uh, flooding, like nine inches of rain. Anyway, they think that it got hit by a lightning strike, or like lightning hit close to it, and the surge shorted out all of the computer uh, modules. So right now, the repair bill is upwards of five grand. It's absolutely insane. I don't, you know, technology has its perks. I'm not sure with automobiles uh, that it's really something I'm I'm into. Because when those computers go out, damn, they're expensive. Uh, but hopefully, uh, insurance is going to pick up the slack there after my deductible. Uh, hopefully, it's not totaled. I don't know. But the bill just keeps going up. They keep finding other things wrong. Um, we shall see. But anyway, I've been stuck with my sister-in-law's Honda Accord. And I have honestly not driven a sedan in, I, I don't know, uh, since I've been married, to say the very, 15 years? Getting in and I don't see how people drive those things. <laughs> no offense. I used to kill ducks out of a Saturn sedan. I did. 
uh, with a DU sticker on the back. I was that guy. Don't apologize for it. Don't even care. I loved it. We slayed a lot of ducks out of a sedan, but <laughs> once I could afford to buy a truck, uh, I never looked back. And I can't say that I've been in or driven a sedan. I don't know how long. Other than Ubers. I guess, that's, yeah, I've been in Ubers. Uh, so I, I feel like, uh, I don't know, it's weird. I feel like I can't see out of my blind spots. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Uh, so I, anyway, haven't taken the dog dove hunting. I feel bad about that. But I don't, I don't really feel that it's uh, acceptable to throw the muddy dog and all my gear in my sister-in-law's accord. So been shooting my bow every day. Uh, so there's that. And uh, feeling pretty good about elk season, which I will take off uh, for Wyoming next week with my good friend, uh, longtime friend David Morgan. So pumped about that. At least we're shooting the bow. Uh, hopefully you guys have had a great week and have big plans for this weekend as well. Um, what are we doing on today's broadcast? Let me tell you. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee. Black Rifle Coffee, if you know what's good for you. Out of Granddaddy's Beat Up Bold Stanley Thermos, because we are ready to rock and roll. And to kick things off, we're going to check in with Exotic Wildlife Association Executive Director Charlie Seal. Uh, he's been on the show numerous times over the years, none too recently, however. Uh, but I came across this idea, and it was from a, a recent newspaper article I read, but there's folks out there who are concerned Texas Parks and Wildlife is going to inject Axis deer with CWD. I'm not too sure about the viability of, of that rumor, but I do know that there is grant money available for research where they will, at the very least, dump a bunch of Axis deer into pens with CWD positive white-tailed deer. I'm not saying they're going to do it. I, I have no idea, to be frank. Charlie has uh, the inside track on where that stands. And if it's a good thing from a research uh, perspective, or, or maybe we're playing with fire. I don't know. But uh, yeah, interesting stuff coming up from that standpoint. And to my knowledge, no axis deer has ever been infected with chronic wasting disease. Uh, but, but we'll talk about that with Charlie uh, then we will spend some time um, on a little roundtable discussion with Ryan Bassham and uh, our old pal, Gabriella Hoffman. Did you know that the uh, APHIS, well, or APHIS, I don't know how, I pronounce it APHIS, but it's the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. They just closed the Canadian border for the transport of Legally harvested, killed is another way to say that. We don't have to say harvested. But legally taken, killed, <laughs> ducks and geese in Canada can no longer be transported back into the United States. Think about the impact. If you go to Canada and it's a destination waterfowl hunt and you shoot a mess of ducks, now you just have to leave them there. You donate them to the outfitter, I guess, but isn't part of the experience bringing all of that organic protein home and, and sharing it with family and friends? For me, it is, or would be. Like when I go to Kansas, I don't just leave all the ducks there. That's insane. So why 
would aphis do this? I don't. Is it bird flu? Is it, is it or is it what I think it is? An underhanded attack on hunting and shooting sports. Because, and we'll talk about this, but I'm not sure of any scientific data that exists to support the closure. <laughs> Seems crazy. Uh, but anyway, we'll, we'll have an interesting conversation with uh, world traveler, adventurer, and hunter Ryan Bassam and our DC connection uh, Gabriella Hoffman. Uh, she hosts the District of Conservation podcast and is a, uh, a good friend of the program. So interesting stuff coming up as we'll try to peel the onion back a little bit on why it's now illegal to bring legally killed ducks and geese back into the United States uh, after hunting in Canada. Hmm. Don't understand it. And to my knowledge, it was done last minute under the cover of darkness. So uh, not a lot of transparency there. That's what we're doing today. Going to be a good one. Guarantee you that. Uh, how about a uh, how about a quick giveaway here? Since we're going to be talking waterfowl, I got another Kent Cartridge prize bag for you. Kent Cartridge cap and two boxes of Kent Fastil 2.0 to get you ready for the upcoming duck season. Uh, so, and I think they're number three shot. Just email the word Kent. That's Kent to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. And you are entered into this week's giveaway. Let's take a break. Up next, Charlie Seal of the Exotic Wildlife Association joins us on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. If you're looking for a thermal hog hunt near DFW, then Three Curl Outfitters has you covered. Offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of Dallas, guide scout daily to put you on the bacon. Using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders, crop fields, and river bottoms, you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees. Visit www.3curl.com. Also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request. Book at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940. In the market for a compact track loader, check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at one of our nine North Texas locations. Visit BobcatOfNorthTexas.com or call 469-586-0000 today. I will be drinking bourbon whiskey all night long with my friends to keep me company. And darling, you. There's a little William Beckman bourbon whiskey, the name of that one, bringing us back. On SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms, I'm Cable Smith. This segment is brought to you by Mossberg Firearms and the Patriot Rifle Lineup. Uh, whether you want a wood grain stock, a laminate, or synthetic, uh, you want uh, camo or black, you name it, or that nice, oh, my favorite, 
that beautiful walnut polish. Yeah. Check out a 300 Win Mag in that walnut. Mm, my favorite. But uh, they've got everything from a 22250 all the way up to a 375 Ruger. It's a rugged and reliable American made rifle lineup. You can find it at mossberg.com. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into our first conversation piece for today. CWD in exotic species? Is it a thing? Is it not? Should it be? I don't know. Let's find out with Exotic Wildlife Association Executive Director Charlie Seal. It's great to have you back on. Hey, it's good to be back. And uh, hey, it's, uh, it's a great day. I'm on the coast and uh, life is good right now. So yeah, you're joining us from vacation. So uh, are you doing any fishing? No, we're just uh, we're just hanging out uh, on the beach and, and in the pool mainly. Right, <laughs> cold beer sounds good, huh? There you go. Yeah. Well, so um, it's probably been a few years since we last visited, but you've been the head of the uh, Exotic Wildlife Association for a long time. Tell us a little bit about that organization, first of all. Well, uh, the EWA was founded, uh, Cable, back in 1967, and uh, it was it was founded by some of the icons in the exotic industry, such as Charles Shriner the Third and Dale Prio, and some of those names. And uh, I've been to the Wyo Ranch before. Well, the, unfortunately, it's not like it used to be. They no. recently sold to to a new owner, and uh, but you know, as they say, time moves on, and it's a shame to see a, a historical. Uh, landmark, you know, divided up like that. But regardless, uh, they started an association because the the um, uh, the traditional livestock associations were not taking care of of our industry, and so that's that that's how uh, the EWA uh, came to pass. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Just a little more on that. They still have uh, Charlie's his. Uh his family cemetery there. You can actually see his, his headstone at that, uh, yes. at the old YO there. Uh, so a very cool and historical place. And I think even going back to before the formation of the EWA, uh, Charlie brought some black buck, I believe. And I don't remember what else, but for sure black buck from, uh, I think a zoo in California or something. And kind of, yeah, the, uh, well, that, that's, that, that's a fact he brought in Barbadoshi uh-huh. and, um, and all dad and plus um some um black buck and i think most of those came that was back in the days when the zoos such as san antonio zoo and the uh zoos out in in california um were, would uh, sell excess uh animals to the ranchers mm-hmm. and uh that's <clears throat> that was the starting you know of the exotic industry of course even back before that uh eddie rickenbacker you know the famous uh, world war one ace had brought uh animals uh, i think of all dad sheep and and even prior to that the king ranch was given uh nil guy antelope and so that's how all that history started the nil guy were from some some royalty somewhere i believe that that is correct yes they were given to them as a gift uh, by uh, out of india getting a little interference there on the audio Uh, hopefully that'll correct itself so okay there's the history of the exotic wildlife trade how it originated in Texas. Take us to 2022 and the EWA's purpose here today. Well, we're still, uh, you know, we still have the same mission, which is conservation through commerce. And uh, we believe that, you know, wholeheartedly that if uh, you give an animal value, um, it will, uh, the ranchers will propagate that animal. 
and uh, you know we've we've got more numbers of rare and endangered species. In fact, some species that are extinct in their native land are doing well, uh, extremely well, here in the Texas Hill Country. And the reason they do that is because it's almost uh, the climate, the terrain, and everything is almost exactly the way their their native habitat was mm-hmm. or is. Okay. Um, well, that leads me to what I wanted to ask you about today, and uh, this stems from an article in Lone Star Outdoor News. My longtime friend, uh, Craig Nias, uh, wrote this thing, and apparently a, a bunch of people, from vendors from uh, just the showgoers out at a recent Texas Trophy Hunters uh, extravaganza were coming by their booth saying that they had heard Texas Parks and Wildlife was going to inject axis deer with CWD to just kind of see what would happen. Um, your comment in the in the paper was that that's not true. Well, it's uh, they they backed away cable from that um, from that particular research, mm-hmm. and it's it's our understanding now. Of course, we sit on the CWD task force, so we're in constant contact with with Parks and Wildlife and their big game department up there, uh, headed by Mitch Lockwood. Mm-hmm. And I think. I think what they're looking at right now, and they've 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 obtained a grant to put these axes uh, into infected pens, CWD infected pens, and uh, see if they can contract it. Uh, we certainly, uh, I don't, we don't go along with what they're doing with that type of research. In fact, it goes against the Code of Federal Rules that governs CWD and interstate commerce that uh, an animal, in order to be susceptible, has to obtain and be susceptible to it through natural means, which, uh, you know, just putting them into a heavily infected pen like that, it's better than injecting them because you could give a rock CWD if you if you put enough prions into it. Uh-huh. And so... Uh, our thought is on that is that uh, you know there is there's no research on how much how many prions it takes uh, to be able to contract CWD for any animal for that matter. Hmm. But uh, certainly you know they tried it a few years ago on fallow deer and it, it they couldn't even give it to them through oral inoculations. And so so there's uh, no there's no recorded case of an exotic species contracting CWD. Well, there there is, uh, which was in um, uh, China or Korea, I guess it was, uh, several years back, and that was through a Saika deer. Hmm. So, as a result of that one case, Saika have are, are considered to be uh, under USDA regulations uh, susceptible to CWD, as are red deer, and of course, in Texas, elk are considered exotic animals, yeah. um, and so. Uh, they are susceptible to CWD. But those species, I mean, Saika and, and well, Saika is a very close relative of an elk or a red deer. Uh, so I could see that because those, those would seem to be very closely related to our native ungulates. Um, but it's never been found in an axis deer. They couldn't inject it into a fallow deer or orally give a, you know, have a fallow deer contract it. So I don't understand... If it hasn't already happened, and we know how many axis deer there are in the Texas Hill Country, both free-ranging and high, you know, behind high fences, 
there's literally hundreds of thousands of them. So I don't understand why we're if it if it ain't broke, why are we trying to fix it? I guess is the question. Well, I, I think it has more to do with regulations than anything, Gable. It's um, you know, I think Parks and Wildlife would like nothing better than to be able to regulate some form of our industry. Now we're currently uh, the exotic industry. All exotics are considered livestock under the Ag- Agriculture Code in Texas. And as a result of that, we, we are governed. Our regulations come from the Texas Animal Health Commission, mm-hmm. which is part of the Department of Agriculture. And um, so I think Texas Parks and Wildlife would like to have a little bit of governance over over some of our animals. And if they can prove that they're susceptible, then they can regulate the free range, certainly the free range, mm-hmm. uh, who even though they're considered livestock and they belong to who's ever land they're on at that time, uh, they still could uh, farm regulations on the on transporting them, catching them free range, and that's the way a lot of these access are are repopulated on the ranches out here. Is that the tr- traders and trappers uh, catch the free range and then obviously sell them through auctions or through private treaty to other individuals? Or have you heard one way or the other where they're actually where they're they're really going to do that? Put these access deer in a in highly infected whitetail pen, or is it just something well, that's proposed at this point well it, it is a proposal at this point i understand that a grant has been given to them for that but it has not been approved through and i don't know what the hierarchy is at texas a&m where they're going to run the research but i don't know that it's been approved by their board of regents or whoever makes those decisions at, at the uh, university level at their research facilities you know they they are working on uh, and we we've helped them with this as far as research money they're working on vaccines for anthrax and things like that and certainly as you well know anthrax poses a greater risk uh to human populations as well as all animals uh ungulates especially uh than than cwd ever will mm-hmm. and uh, th- this is why we're we're really kind of confused as to why they're spending so much money on uh, on this research and not uh, research into other things such as the EHD that kills literally thousands of deer each year, and we're losing uh, deer right now to EHD. And uh, also, we've had cases of anthrax this summer already in a hot-edge sheep over in the southwestern part of the state. So that, that's what we don't understand is why so much research money is being funneled that way. Well, and I went to the annual uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife public meeting a couple weeks ago and, and spoke out against uh, this Texans from Outlines group just based off of who they are and, and their ideology fundamentally have a lot of issues with them. But one of the other hotly contested topics was uh, CWD and landowners showing up in mass to oppose Texas parks and wildlife. They're, they've, they're planning a, a, a much larger um, surveillance zone in South Texas. And I'm sure you're well aware of that, but uh, yes, it was a, uh, I mean, there were landowners crying who had had their entire whitetail herd just wiped out based off of not even a CWD positive test, but they brought in an animal from a location that where there had been CWD. Um, so I, I certainly understand well, Texas Parks and Wildlife has to do what they think is best for our native ungulates, and they, you know, really exotics are an afterthought to them, but... Uh, you also have to look at it from the landowner's perspective, like, goodness gracious. 
make it make sense? Well, the exotic industry has literally, in many instances, saved the family ranches here in the state of Texas. I mean, it, it has been a diverse um, industry for many of the landowners who have turned away from traditional ranching and uh, are, are using, you know, of course, uh, the whitetail. That'll that will always be the number one game animal. We know that, and the the, the diversification of the ranch and and uh, the the rules and regulations that are coming down on top of the ranchers who who primarily breed and 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 uh, propagate whitetail is just so it has really uh, they're so onerous. The rules are is that a lot of these guys, you know, I think they're probably about less than two thirds of the uh, readers that existed you know, five years ago are no longer there. And I, you know, I was a breeder for many years, almost 20 years. And I saw the handwriting on the wall back before they really started get, hammering the regulations on top of us. And I, I was able to sell my entire herd prior to that, but I got out simply because I did not want to deal with those onerous rules and regulations hmm. and strictly turned our operation, our ranching operation into exotics. Well, Charlie, I guess it kind of in closing here, I, I do not believe that COVID-19 came from a bat. I think it escaped from a lab. I think that's generally anyone with a brain can connect the dots there. And used to, they'd call us conspiracy theorists. Now it's kind of widely accepted as what happened. <laughs> uh, right. this, this seems to me like an opportunity for something that happened with humans to happen with wildlife. If you're, if you're messing with these kind of diseases and you're trying to, uh, you know, get positive cases in, 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 in a species that seems pretty resilient to it up to now. I don't know. It's like, did we learn anything from Wuhan? I just kind of like a, we're playing with fire here. Well, you're exactly right. And, and one of the things that your listeners need to understand is this, that CWD was founded or was discovered and given a name. I'm not saying it was founded. It's been there for, I think, for centuries. Mm -hmm. But it was given a name in 1967 in a research facility out in Fort Collins, Colorado, where they were uh, research uh, on scrapie and sheep. And then they put mule deer into that, and which and and it's there's a that's a direct derivative. And you think about here in the state of Texas. You know where are the core areas of this CWD? Even though it's starting to spread o over uh, a lot of the the regions of Texas, but the core area where CWD was first discovered. If you think back on that, for years and years, and even today, is is a heavy sheep and goat uh, country. Mm -hmm. And we still believe that a lot of that that the prions in the soil were as a result of scraping, and uh, it's been transmitted to the deer, and that's and. That's kind of how it how it all I think came came to pass. Mm -hmm. Well, it's definitely something that we'll continue to monitor. Um, I appreciate your time today. Thanks for uh, shedding some light on the situation. And if you want to, uh, you know, tell tell our listeners where they can find you guys, uh, go ahead and plug the EWA. Well, yeah, you can always uh, pull up our website. We've got a great website. It's called my that's m y e w a dot org myewa.org and there's all kinds of buttons and things that you can go into look at our membership look at uh, various articles and things that have been written and uh, so it gives you a lot of good information and we appreciate you having us on today Cable. Absolutely there he goes Charlie Seal of the Exotic Wildlife Association uh, great stuff there that segment brought to you by NUMA 
geared for the outdoors. Check out the Pathfinder pant if you haven't already. Uh, I was wearing it dove hunting the other day, covered in briars. It just brushed them off. just fell right off. I don't know what's in that material, but it's like magical. Get burrs and stickers on you, come right off. Also, the crotch area, stretchy, which is important. So you're not going to be restricted, especially if you're doing a lot of upland hunting or, or walking. It's a perfect pant. Haven't found a better one. You can find the Pathfinder pant right there at numaoutdoors.com. Save 20% with my promo code LONESTAR20 when you check out. All right. Uh, up next, it's a roundtable discussion with Gabriella Huffman and Ryan Bassham on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Some damn fool put a dollar twenty-nine on a jug. If I'm gonna make it, I don't know if I'll have a strength to take it. Everything's hung up in yesterday. Hey! It's time to tell you about Protect Products. Veteran owned and made in the USA, Protect makes your water work harder for you in the field. They have a hydration electrolyte formula for endurance and replenishment. It's perfect for elk hunting, right? Uh, energy formula for when you need an extra kick. Immunity for optimizing the immune system. And one of my favorites, the rest formula to ensure deep sleep and proper recovery. All the formulas are liquid, so they mix instantly in your water bottle or camelback. And the cool thing is, they don't gunk them up like a powder with that messy residue. They also have an easy-to-use line of mineral sunscreen for quick and odorless application and all-day protection in the field. For more info, head over to protect.com to see their entire lineup. That's protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com. Hey guys, Cable here for Cryo and More, the one-stop feel-good shop in McKinney, Texas. I've been going there for over a year now. All your holistic healing needs with cold, heat, and compression therapy services. And these services, they're the fastest way that I've found to reduce inflammation and to get to the root cause of pain. You don't need to be in pain, though, in order to benefit from these services. Cryotherapy helps with burning calories, optimizing sleep, boosting energy, and much more. I can tell you that's true because I feel like a brand new man every time I get out of the cryo chamber. Uh, plus, compression therapy helps promote healthy blood flow. Come in anytime before 1 o'clock, 1 p.m. Monday through Saturday. Say the words cold outdoors and you'll get $10 off your cryo session. That's cryoandmore.com. Well, you have been a fighting man. You've seen your share of war. Living for your Uncle Sam. Sam don't need you anymore. Cable Smith, welcome everybody back into SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Thanks for being here today. Uh, we're about to talk some waterfowling and some ridiculous regulatory changes that'll leave you scratching your head. But before we do so, this segment brought to you by Stealth Cam and the Fusion X wireless cell camera. You can find the Fusion as well as Stealth Cam's entire lineup of trail cameras right there at StealthCam.com. Okay. Joining us now for a little waterfowl roundtable and a behind-the-scenes conversation as to what exactly happened 
and the potential impact of these changes, it's my pleasure to welcome back our old friend, District of Conservation podcast host and reporter, journalist, jack-of-all-trades, Gabriella Hoffman, as well as uh, world traveler, adventurer, and hunter, Ryan Bassham. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Good to be back. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so our listeners are, are probably familiar with uh, with Gabby by now. She's been on the show multiple times. Uh, Ryan, maybe not so much with you. So tell us a little bit uh, about yourself, because we've known each other for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it probably the first time I met you was at a, like a DSC Correct. show and you were there with Get Ducks. Correct. Uh, yeah. And uh, Ramsey. So right. Um, anyway, you live in Montana now. Yeah, so living in Bozeman, Montana now, um, I've had the fortunate opportunity to do several things in the hunting industry, and I've worked for Drake Waterfowl, Sika Gear, um, and most recently, I've kind of gone out on my own. I'm part owner in a couple of businesses and um, do some content creation type stuff and just uh, enjoy anything and everything hunting, so... And, and uh, the clip note version is uh, I work in the hunting industry. <laughs> and where are you from originally? Originally, I'm from the Dallas area. Uh, you know, I, I follow along on your social media stuff. And uh, I don't know a lot of hunters that, that travel more than I do. You know, uh, Ryan's one of those guys. He <laughs> seems like he's always off in some foreign place chasing something. Um, and, and that's why I wanted to have you on today. I mean, look at your backdrop. There's ducks from all over the world, geese from all over <laughs> everywhere behind you there so my wife uh, doesn't like this room but i love this room (laughs) (laughs) yeah my wife doesn't like my office either um but it's my favorite place Uh, so so what we're going to talk about today um is the situation with the biden administration uh and aphis which is the animal and plant health inspection service um i guess or you know entity of the government uh they for some reason decided okay all you waterfowlers out there that are traveling to Canada, no more importing ducks or geese for you. Uh, Gabby, was this something that, that that we had heard like murmurs about or was it just kind of done under the cover of darkness with no warning? There have been some reports about them going back and forth with this rule change, but it was a friend of mine who works for Delta Waterfall who alerted me to it. And then I started to talk about it because I had no idea that this was going on. But it was reported kind of in smaller chatter, more regional newspapers. And my friend at Delta Waterfall was like, hey, did you see this? Because they had agreed not to do this. And then they ignored our recommendations. And then they proceeded with this, even ignoring everything even from Canada's equivalent, their inspection agency that said this has no effect on birds that you consume, especially those that are examined and harvested and then prepared to be brought back here through importation and all that. And so they're kind of going against all things wildlife biology and all things common sense. Mm -hmm. If you have some familiarity with hunting anywhere in the country and even abroad, I haven't, as a caveat, I haven't hunted abroad yet, but I was studying kind of what was going into their reasoning with this. And mm-hmm. to me, it doesn't seem founded in science. Different wildlife biologists who have spoken about the topic have said they're perplexed as to why APIS concluded that this was the proper decision, especially mm-hmm. as hunting season starts to ramp up and start to progress too. And so I think politically we'll, we'll discuss what that means, but I think a lot of people are scratching their heads who are maybe ambivalent about what hunting policy is looking like now, federally speaking, maybe it's opening up people to 
the fact that uh, nothing is always guaranteed and maybe we had it pretty good previously and now we're going to have to have this reckoning to deal with, especially by way of rules changes administratively. So there's a lot of things happening that are impacting hunting by ways that we can't impact it unless you change presidential administrations or unless you petition them to say, hey, you guys are wrongheaded, you need to change this. So that's kind of what's going on in a nutshell and we can break down the details more clearly, but I think it stunned a lot of people in conservation. Like I said, I'm usually on top of things, but I was totally unaware of this. And even though I don't go hunting to me, I see it as another incremental attack on hunting and we can expound Mm -hmm. on why that is the case. That's why I always like having Gabby on is because she does all of the uh, grunt work and is so well versed in, in the uh, interworkings of what's going on behind the scenes. Um, What was the, what was their reason? They had to give some kind of reason, right? Was it uh, what I read on a Forbes article was like avian flu was the thing but but in that same forbes article it says four billion not this is more than just ducks and geese but four billion <laughs> birds migrate from canada to the united states each fall so like what is a bird in a cooler ryan which i assume yeah this is like, just like if you're traveling anywhere you have to have a wing attached the birds clean in a cooler whether you're driving across the border i've taken uh i've gone to south texas and shot teal um for the teal opener a couple of times. And I just fly back from, from Houston with like my, my little carry on cooler, the birds are cleaned in there, but 4 billion birds are coming down here anyway. So I don't understand right. the, the logic it's, here. It doesn't make any sense. I think that's the frustration. I think, especially from, you know, I, I don't have the knowledge that Abby does, but you know, there, there's not a whole lot of logic based around this. It's, it's pretty frustrating. I mean, you know, you read through all these articles and, and I think we all have like, some of these birds can migrate up to 800 miles in an hour, right. you know, an hour's time. And so, um, honestly, like the transportation of harvested game from Canada back into the U S is probably a much more efficient way to bring birds into the country versus them flying and doing whatever it will, because if they're processed or if there is no foot or wing attached, which presents a problem based on federal law, um, for transport reasons, that is actually a more, it's an easier way to, to maintain and not allow the, the whole bird flu thing to, to blow up and, and, and create this issue that they're so afraid of. And so there's a lot of frustrations in and around this. And I think as we peel back the layers in this discussion, like, yeah, it's just, it, it kind of was blindsided because the first I heard of this even being a possibility was probably around a month ago, I think um, SCI put some, some information out there. And I was talking to a friend of mine who is the president of the, um, guided outfitter association in Alberta. I was like, Hey man, how real is this? Like, this is a problem. Talked to another biologist and he was like, yeah, we had the same issue in 2015. They overturned it. Wasn't an issue. Um, and here we sit and like after hours on the weekend of a holiday, now all of a sudden they've put this into place and it's like, Whoa, where did that come from? Like there's hunters that have traveled to Canada and they're hunting there. Now I've talked to several of them. They're like, what do we do? And I was like, guys, I, you're pretty limited on your options. It's you're in a pickle. What a waste too. I mean, I guess the the guides could eat them, but for a lot of us, like ethically, I don't, I don't want to go to Canada and shoot whatever. I don't know what the limit is. Eight ducks a day for five days. It differs in the province, 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 the, 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 uh, um, you know, the regulations on how many birds you can, can hunt varies, but, Mm -hmm. but it's a lot. It's more than we get to hunt down here in North America. Or in, right. in the U.S. Yeah. So let's just say you go there for for five days and you you've killed eighty uh forty ducks, forty ducks. Yeah. Okay. What now? What? I mean, so yeah. who's going to want to do that? So to me, it seems 
like a it seems like an underhanded attack on on hunting is what it seems like and hunting is sports right definitely feels that way i mean you're you're pretty limited on your options because technically there's gray area in the way this law is written and please you guys you can help me expound on this great but even if it's processed game meat like if that wing's not attached technically that violates a transport law Mm -hmm. and so a lot of guys are thinking oh well i'll just process all my meat make snacks sticks and goose brats or whatever it's like that that still violates the transport law. So even if you're trying to do the ethical thing here, um, you're still potentially breaking the law, and so that doesn't work either. It's it's a conundrum. Huh. Uh, I, or I, the other option, which not everyone's going to do this because who would? But if you can find a USDA facility there for taxidermy, you could have it you know processed as a taxidermy bird, but like how many people are going to bring back more than one or two taxidermy birds? And then it has to be right. shipped back. So that's not a viable option either. Yeah. So you can't even have your taxidermist here do your bird anymore. Not, not with the way this is written and in place at the moment. So no meat. And from a collector standpoint, I mean, like, like I said, look at your backdrop. You couldn't, you couldn't bring any of these ducks home. I'd have to find a taxidermist there that can be USDA certified, run it through the proper process and then bring it back and have to pay the shipping on it. Uh-huh. Now you've traveled to South America too. To hunt ducks. Um, you can't bring those birds back, right? No, legally you cannot. And it's because in Argentina, no native game has a export permit. And so legally you cannot take game out of the country. That is native game. Hmm. Okay. So, but I do want to go there and do a red stag hunt. So that's, that's oh, yeah. exotic. So you can bring that back, I guess. Correct. Yeah. So I was just there in March. We hunted uh-huh. stag, black buck and uh, water buffalo. You can bring them all back because they're non-native species. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause that, they have some cool teal species, silver teal, stuff like that. I'm always like, yeah, oh, uh, I want got a to, couple uh, over here. Uh, uh-huh. Brazilian teal, speckled teal, um, the silver teal, ring teal um, and other countries like um, Peru, you've got uh, Puna teal on and on and on. They've got some cool stuff, different varieties of cinnamon teal even. So definitely worth going, even if you can't bring birds back. That's a little different than just driving across the border, you know, for sure. What a lot of, (laughs) a lot of American waterfowlers are doing. Right. Right. Um, I actually missed out on a hunt in Saskatchewan last year with Mossberg because I, I haven't taken the vaccine. Mm, So, you know, I think a a lot of hunters still aren't going because of that. Um, Mm which is draconian uh, Trudeau's got his head so far up his ass. It's absurd. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but now you have this attack on uh, it's, it's a wonder to me that these Canadian outfitters are st- still able to scratch out a living because they've essentially cut half of their demographic, their, you know, potential customer base in half with, right. with the stuff they're doing. Well, and, and in fact, and I don't know how accurate this number is, but I, I read a report uh, and I'm fairly certain that this was fairly recent, but a third of the hunters in Canada are U S hunters. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, a third of that hunting economy for the guides and the outfitters is coming from U S hunters, potentially, if we're going based off that data point. And yeah, I mean, that's a major hit to their economy. And I think what some of these outfitters are going to have to do now, um, as they try to, to figure out how to still have us hunters come in, but not waste this game meat is charge a processing fee. I know of one outfitter that is doing that. And so it's an additional fee. And in that way, hunters can still come and hunt. It's mm-hmm. a bummer that they can't bring the meat back, but they can enjoy some of the meat while they're there. And then the outfitter is just going to, similar to what I see in Africa and other places around the world, they'll just use that meat as part of what they feed their clients with and yeah. then gift it to less fortunate families, et cetera, which, um, 
is something that we we aren't used to in Canada. We're used to seeing that in other places in the world mm-hmm. because we can't bring meat back from there. But now we're seeing it just right here across the border. I live six hours from the border. So this is very strange for me. Birds that I hunt, you know, here in Montana, they were literally there in Canada maybe hours ago. So it's, right. this whole thing is silly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, let's take a break. We'll come back. And Gabby, uh, I want to ask you, you know, realistically, what kind of recourse do we as as waterfowlers and conservationists have to try to get this reversed? Uh, that segment of the show was brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy and the good folks over at Big and Jay Whitetail Attractions. We'll be right back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Wow, we live in crazy times when it comes to censorship on social media. And if you're a gun owner and a hunter, and if you're proud of those things and you post about those things, then you're already on the blacklist. You're getting censored. You might not even know it. Take it from me. I had my Instagram page deleted for an entire month for no reason last year. Mm-hmm. Guess what? That kind of stuff doesn't happen over at Go Wild. It's a community of people who love to hunt, fish, and cook their wild game. They also love guns. If you want to be a part of that kind of place where you're not getting censored, where they actually promote posts with that kind of content, just go to download Go Wild. It's a free app. I absolutely love it. You'll see me there posting every day. So come on, join the conversation at Go Wild. I'm Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Let's face it, guys. We all would love to own land, right? But they're not making any more of it. However, there's a solution. Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers finance their own piece of paradise for over 100 years. Whether you want it for recreating, ranching, fishing, hunting, or just to get the hell out of Dodge for the weekend. Visit Lone Star Ag Credit today to start making that dream a reality. And way through muddy waters one last time. And in my dreams I come out clean. When I reach the other side, west where the sun sets. One of my favorites there from the Steel Drivers, bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. I'm Cable Smith. Thanks for being here. Uh, we've still got our roundtable waterfowl discussion going with Ryan Bassham and Gabriella Hoffman. But before we get back into uh, that conversation, this segment is proudly brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. I'm a proud member. Ryan's a proud member. I believe Gabby is as well. Uh, and there's a reason for that because few groups, if any, I don't think there is one, uh, have the 
the sway. Let's just say that. Have the sway that SCI does in Washington, D.C. They put their money where their mouth is, protecting your rights as a sportsman or woman and as a conservationist. For more info, head over to safariclub.org. We'd love to have you. With that being said, let's pick it back up with Gabby and Ryan. Uh, Gabby, you know, we talked about APHIS and their decision to ban the import of legally taken waterfowl from Canada back into the United States. Absolutely absurd. What recourse do we have at this point to to get this, this wrong righted? What you have to do is you have to contact the agency. And I suspect the likes of Safari Club, probably DU Delta will probably create alerts to mm-hmm. have correspondence with those in charge of the agency, the rule makers who put this decision out. And I think that's the best way that you get this revoked. Will they listen to comments? Given what I've noticed all across the board on different issues, they seem to say, okay, we'll take in stakeholder input, whether it's hunting or not conservation related they say, okay, we we totally we totally empathize with the stakeholders. We'll meet with you. We'll heal your concerns. But they already have a predetermined conclusion. They just wanted to say, okay, check off the box. We talked to stakeholders. We'll claim we spoke to stakeholders, but we're mm. really going with largely the special interest groups, especially in our sphere, that have told us, okay, let's try to do something to, let's say, maybe undermine hunting under the guise of a let's say bird flu pandemic. And what worries me, and I try, I don't comment on COVID policy much. But I worry if they view avian flu, which is a concern, but it's not very dangerous for, let's say, human consumption. That's what Mm -hmm. Canada's agency said. uh, And I included that in an article that I wrote. I could see this administration hypothetically saying, what's to stop them from declaring this, let's say, a pandemic? And then they'll say, well, because of this crisis from Canada and the birds are flying over, crossing the border, we have to put a moratorium on waterfowl hunting in the United States to help address the problem two weeks to slow the spread, or maybe three, four months throughout the duration of duck season (laughs) to stop the spread of avian bird. We got to vaccinate these ducks. (laughs) (laughs) So I worry in the worst case scenario, if duck hunters and conservationists do not sound the alarm and get them to reverse course before the end of season, I worry they could potentially stall this. That's the worst case scenario. The best Mm -hmm. case scenario is there's so much outrage even from, let's say, preservationist groups who are saying, hey, this is actually very wrongheaded. And our friends in Canada have said this is not a big concern right now. That's kind of the worst case or best case scenario. Worst case, I see them extending it. Uh, That's how you have to think, unfortunately. And we can talk more about, you know, patterns. But I see this, you know, they're using rulemaking to undermine hunting access in this country. We've talked about this before. Anyone who has decent vision can see this kind of in their periphery. They essentially settled with Center for Biological Diversity in a petition to cut off hunting access under the guise of lead ammo and tackle usage. Now they put out a rule to say we're going to retroactively potentially ban lead and ammo on national wildlife refuges, which are managed by Fish and Wildlife Service. Or they say for future openings, we'll have no lead accessories altogether. Mm -hmm. So I worry that they're doing things by rulemaking, claiming they're representing the hunters, And this seems to be very similar, but I wonder if there's a Supreme Court case, this may be above the pale for your listeners, but there was a Supreme Court case. It was actually a really good environmental lawsuit that said that EPA's actions on greenhouse gases are limited to Congress and not the administrative state. So I wonder if this exceeds USDA APHIS's authority to do this under this Supreme Court case that was decided and applies all across the federal branch of government, the executive branch rather of government. 
So I wonder if, and if let's say comments don't work, next would be different groups filing a class action lawsuit to say, hey, we're suing you because of dereliction of duty or the fact that this isn't rooted in science. And then they can cite the Supreme Court case as a reason for challenging the saying that this administrative this administrative agency doesn't have the authority to restrict this especially with evidence showcasing that this is not a potent this is not a current danger mm-hmm. so there could be lawsuits filed if they don't reverse course through public outrage um but there are different means and and if people aren't awakened to let's say losing your hunting access by this means by something as let's say innocent sounding as this because it's a so-called health emergency what won't awaken people? Similarly, look what we see with Alaska, and then I'll hand it over to Ryan. Um, obviously, 60 million acres to caribou hunting were closed off by this subsistence board, which is appointed by the Biden administration. This new administration. This is why I people. said from the beginning, and, and same with SEI and, and other pro hunting organizations like Deb Howland is a bad choice. And she's proven to not have the interests of sportsmen, uh, you know, front and center, which we asked her for a no net loss policy. She wouldn't commit to it, but this is the result. And uh, they just closed those two units to um, doll sheep hunting as well in Alaska yep. with yep. no scientific data to support it. You know who really loses though with the whole uh, lead shot ban? It's the poor fishermen. Mm-hmm. Like the, hunters are always dragged through the mud, but the anglers get away scot-free. We never, you know, uh, and I love fishing <laughs> too, but like no, no lead tackle on these places. I mean, it's absurd. Yeah. And lead, let's say components, it's highly debatable whether or not it's, let's say, toxic. And most people, let's say all of us have been hunting. I'm new to hunting compared to you guys. I've gone for like five, six years now. But anytime I've done anything with lead bullets or, you know, lead sh- uh, shots, I make sure the excess, you know, shot there is removed from the carcass of the meat. I'm not eating and ingesting lead components. I right. think most hunters look for that. And if you get it immediately out upon, you know, taking the kill shot, you're going to be fine. It's not going to contaminate it. Some people said, well, it potentially has that danger with it. So far, I haven't had lead poisoning, knock on wood. And so um, with fishing too, I don't know how you, you can even make an argument for fishing. I do a lot of fishing and I've been fishing for most of my life. They've did this in California and it actually led to fewer people participating in the sport. You make it more expensive, you price people out. Yeah. Yeah, So it's basically to undermine the sport under the guise of fixing an environmental problem problem much like this. This is a different agency, same administration, but it seems to me like they're exploiting, let's say the tools of, let's say the CDC or some other outfit, which is supposed to be dealing with pandemics and exceeding their powers and finding a way to undermine hunting. I don't know if they were influenced by, let's say CBD or wildlife defenders or other preservationist groups into this decision. I have no doubt someone behind the scenes, one of these special interest groups probably had to have their ear and say, we want you guys to do this, declare it a public health crisis, even though Canada is not recognizing it. Mm-hmm. So we're well, going to find maybe through lawsuits yeah. or something that will be it. So Ryan, over to you. Well, yeah, no, I, I love everything you're saying. I find it incredibly intriguing. And I, I hope that I don't sound like a conspiracy theorist here, but like for years, I, like my fear has been, okay, like these, these anti-hunting groups, um, they're getting smarter. And quite honestly, it's easier for them because they can run on offensive 
playbook with with all of these political you know designs that they create versus us we're constantly in the defensive and it's very yeah. difficult as hunters to be like we can't run an offensive playbook to combat this stuff really we're kind of hamstringed and what are we supposed um, to do? here's a bunch it, of gory pictures of our kill shots you know like, i mean yeah, exactly right, we're, we're just yeah, on defense 100 percent, and it's and it's a tough spot to be in and there's a lot of misinformation out there and i think what i i think back to a lot like i i think five years ago had we had this discussion of this potentially happening everyone like oh no way it's it i that'll never happen but i look back to what's happening in australia specifically with waterfowl and waterfowl hunters and i mean it's potentially going to go away i mean the the amount of leverage that anti-hunting groups have there and the way they've been able to manipulate the politics within australia and what those anti-hunters are allowed to do it's it's kind of scary. And if it can happen there and in other countries, it absolutely can happen here. And so when you start to look at all of these things and the momentum that's going not in the direction we want, it's, it's a little scary. I mean, I think these anti-hunting individuals and groups have gotten to the point where they're smart enough to say, you know what, it doesn't do any good to go onto these people's social media accounts and take into question their, their manhood. Mm-hmm. or the size there of it. Um, instead, <laughs> we'll infiltrate these political parties and these different agencies and we'll control it from there. And, and that's what scares the heck out of me. And I don't know how much of that's true or me just being a, a crazy conspiracy theorist, it's but it's happening. It's scary. And so like, how do you combat that? I, I don't know. Look well, at you the know, state what we say on agency. this show is yesterday's conspiracy theory is just today's gold conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it keeps happening over and over again, especially right. the last couple of years. I'm like, wow, oh, like we didn't know that was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I had I had Brian Lynn on from Sportsman's Alliance last week, and he, he made a good point and he's said it multiple times. But on the lead shot stuff, going back to that for a second, yeah. we don't manage on an individual uh, basis. We manage for an entire population. So like you're saying, yeah, California condors probably okay maybe not they're so uh their population was in extreme decline maybe mm-hmm. we'll stop shooting lead in that area okay but like if a black bear was to eat part of a discarded moose carcass or something like that and ate a, a fragment okay very very small chance that that bear is even going to get sick number one and if it did we're still managing on a population level what funds all of these things that we love to hunt all the things we like to see in nature, what funds that is by and large uh, ammunition and gun sales from Pittman Robertson yeah. dollars. Mm-hmm. So right. if one bear, and I hate to say it, if one bear got lead poisoning and died, but we have all of these other wild places kept open where there's thriving populations of black bears and it's all funded because of that ammunition. Well, it, you know, you connect the dots, but they can't wrap their mind around the, the idea. No, one bear is too many. Okay. But, but what about all these other bears? You know, um, it's, I, I'll never understand it. It's it's just a very narrow-minded way to look at conservation. Um, but yes, Gabby, again and again, we see this this administration taking the the backdoor, underhanded approach at trying to stomp out our hunting and fishing rights and and pastime. Uh, and they they don't have any transparency. We talked about uh, Deb Howland doing away with the website. You mentioned the settlement with the uh, Center for Biological Diversity. We won't even know what those are anymore because she did away with the website that actually exactly. listed all of our all, all of our taxpayer dollars that we pay out when these mm-hmm. anti uh, hunting organizations sue the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Well, okay, there's a settlement, and we end up paying for their lo- lawyers for their legal fees, and now we don't even know how much we're paying because she was just like, ah, we don't need any accountability. Let's just get rid of that website. 
Not that I ever looked at it. You might have, but it pissed me off to know that it's not there anymore. Yeah, it was put into place in the past administration to offer transparency because you talk to anyone, whether they hunt or whether they work in oil and gas or forestry, a lot of these environmental groups, like you had mentioned, become very sophisticated. So they use these lawsuits to say that these are citizens' lawsuits. We want to help plaintiffs who feel like they've been wronged by different companies. And when the law originally came out, it's the EAJA, the Equal Access to Justice Act. And I think all of us have to start to become familiar with it to try to counter abuses to it. And there is legislation to kind of uh, moderate it, modernize it, and make sure it goes back to its original purpose. So they use these lawsuits, these sue and settle lawsuits as a way to win. And if taxpayers can't see exactly where is this money going to and why these organizations are becoming routinely profitable, and and we look to it and say, okay, why are they wanting these lawsuits? What's the bot? Are they trying to fulfill their bottom line? Is it really rooted in science? These lawsuits are they trying to achieve good change? And you have to question that because you see these lawsuits routinely filed to prevent the delisting of grizzly bears and gray wolves. You see it done on waters of the United States rule. You see it done to stop oil and gas leases. That's a new uh, update recently. I saw that they, I think it was CBD, Sierra Club, and some other usual suspects filed a lawsuit and they settled with the Biden administration to prevent future or opening up new leases for oil and gas exploration on public lands because they want to move away from that, uh, federally speaking, and they want to only have multiple use where solar and wind are developed, which is Mm. very, very controversial and has a lot of damaging effects, which could be a whole nother podcast Mm. episode. Uh, But these sue and settle lawsuits are very problematic. And the fact that we don't have a website to see how much money we know of our taxpayer dollars are going to fulfill the bottom line of these lawyers. And then obviously the bears that they claim to care about, the wolves they claim to care about, all the people they claim to be advocating for, they don't see that money. The bears are kept in perpetuity on the Endangered Species Act. And then you see human increased human bear conflicts, increased bear, or excuse me, human wolf conflicts. So you don't see them actually wanting laws on the books to work as intended. You don't want them, they don't want to see rather the Endangered Species Act work to be fully implemented. So you have more than two to 3% of listed species recovering and being delisted because they hate the prospect of management, which could include highly regulated hunts Mm -hmm. to be on the table. So they're preventing science from going into effect, much like with this duck decision, with this import decision, they don't want wildlife science that is true and tested to be administered. They don't want it to be guiding uh, the decisions. They want politics and emotion to be doing it. That's simply where you have to do it. So everything what I've seen that has come about, especially behind the scenes, seems to be guided by emotion rather than science. And they tell us that if we don't follow the science, we're crooked and backwards. But when science beckons to be followed in these very niche areas, they completely throw it out the window mm-hmm. because they want they, they believe in the anthropomorphism of these animals, that they're cute and cuddly and how dare we manage them. But you don't manage them. It's going to create total chaos on the chain you know, from humans to fellow species to competitors, it creates a whole disruption. And this notion of rewilding everything, which is what they also claim in these lawsuits, we have to make everything wild. So no hunting whatsoever, no management whatsoever. Rewilding is going to be impossible to fulfill because you'll never be able to restore certain species to the original ranges. You won't be able to have certain forests grow completely 100% like they used to, if you don't have logging or, you know, sustainable timber operations going into effect. So they're working with an impossible goal. They have to recognize that humans are needed in conservation practices, and they have to reckon with that where we can do it positively because we've learned from past mistakes where people 
even well-intended timber people may have done some wrong things in the past. And now the processes are sophisticated. Hunting is a lot more engineered in a proper way. People can bow hunt. They can hunt with a rifle, many different ways that you can hunt sustainably and safely too, without obviously injuring an animal without going crazy while doing hunting and not taking more than your lot. We're not in the age of market game hunting anymore. So that's kind of a long-winded thing about it, but it's a, it's a failure to recognize science and, and very provable evidence that showcases that wildlife management that has largely been in effect for decades, almost a hundred years since Pittman Robertson is working. And these are the true obstacles to conservation efforts. These radical preservationists, we have to continue to make a distinction. They're not conservationists, they're radical preservationist environmentalists who are uh, against progress. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that completely. I, I think that more than ever, we need these types of conservation programs in place where we are more active. The, the human wildlife conflict um, across the world has never been more prevalent than it is now. It's because, yeah. you know, human populations are growing worldwide and the impacts that we see on that, you, you can't ever go back to how it used to be because we as humans have continued to take, 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 take. And we've put ourselves in a position where we have to now be stewards of these wildlife areas so that we, we don't destroy it further. But to rewild it and try and get it back to what it once was, it's not even an option anymore. We have to be able to manage the resources and um, to, to try and do it any other way has already proven not to work. So the, the notion that this is still something that different organizations try to do in other countries and, and here in our own country is, it's, it's laughable at best. I mean, it's, it's super frustrating. So I don't I know. More and more people being killed in Africa by elephants. Uh, it seems like that just keeps going up and up and up and up. And oh, yeah. Botswana and uh, Namibia, uh, Zambia still, Zambia, and is especially with Botswana. I mean, they're they're like fifty thousand elephants over their carrying capacity. Uh, oh yeah. Like, well, uh, I know a, a way to help solve that problem. Sure, well, and it and will actually make you a lot of money and provide a lot of protein for you too. There's been culling efforts across the continent of Africa for decades, and so and it's always been for a very important need and, and, and it's been a way to help maintain other wildlife and the the ecosystem. They're so vastly different from country to country. Like this is just proven tactics that work in making sure we, we have sustainable resources like this for a long time. And, and to, to negate that and not go back to the science to, to Gabby's point is I just don't understand it's, it's pure emotion and we've, we've got to help most people get past that. You just feel like you're beating your head against the wall sometimes, though, trying to, I mean, I've, I, <laughs> I've always had this stance, right, as, as this is what we do for a living is, is talk about sustainable use hunting and the North American conservation model and why it's effective and why we believe in it. We know that it works. I mean, we're living in a time of, of great abundance in, in wildlife, and it's because that system works. And then you tell these people like, Hey, look, look at this, look at this thing right here. It's doing a great job. No, 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 that, that I don't like seeing an animal get shot. Well, okay. <laughs> but, but don't you like more animals or do you want less animals? And they it's like, <laughs> right. I feel like you're just, I feel a lot of, all the time. Like you're just beating your head against the wall, trying For to turn sure. sense into someone that already has their mind made up. Uh, so I don't know, maybe that's where the offensive part of our, uh, of what we do going forward is like the, just the messaging. Um, yeah, I think, I think for a long time we kind of just sat on our heels and then when social media came, like they went on the offensive 
And we really didn't have a plan for, it seems like, a decade. Uh, I think SCI, um, Sportsman's Alliance, Howl for Wildlife, we're all doing a, mm-hmm. a, a great job of being proactive at this point. But mm-hmm. I think we kind of got behind the eight ball for so and, and let them trample on us for so long. And then the Cecil the Lion thing, yeah, that was, I think, the worst thing that's happened on social media that really, like, for the non-hunter, I saw sure. a lot of them turned off by that whole thing. Um, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, where we can be effective on the offensive and, and you put in some great examples there. I think social media has changed the game and the way we interact as society in general. But but also there's all this misinformation out there. But there's so many people that are on the fence with hunting and, and hunting policies around the globe. The, the opportunity to have conversations like this and try to put this educational um, you know, type of content out there hopefully we'll we'll get to the right people that are on the fence and persuade them one way or the other but you could you could also do it one person at a time i mean in the last month i can think of three conversations i had with people that are like you hunt in africa why and after you know five to 30 minute conversations with them depending on the time we had they walked away from those conversations telling me at the end of it i see it differently now thank you for sharing i'll look at hunting in africa totally different and and probably would support it even though i may never go do it and so i think we got to just keep having these conversations as redundant as it may seem and frustrating we got to keep having the conversation yeah absolutely yeah uh, one person at a time i try to do that as well i have a series called conservation nation and we did a bear management expose actually we didn't show any killing of bears but i spoke to bear biologists i spoke to hunting guides that were affected by a lack of bear management we were able to showcase the human side to it i think we have to do an endeavor to do more storytelling projects kind of like what blood origins does where you're not showing the kill shot necessarily but you're showing the humans behind the hunting or the let's say outfitting operation or organization something like that and when you can humanize the issue and say like hey these are people too they're not just they're not monsters out for blood to kill animals. They understand that balance is needed. And they also have, let's say, an affinity for the animals. Uh, the American Bear Foundation, which used to be known as the Western Bear Foundation, great group of guys. I've known Joe Condilis for many, many years. And he's a person I go to often about bear stuff. And he loves the bears. He hunts, but he also loves them. He goes along on den studies. He is involved in every aspect. He works with wildlife biologists too. And and there are many people like that as well across different species, same with elk, same with ducks, any species you can name. And there are opportunities, I think, and, and we are starting to see more of our people speak in, let's say, the mainstream media, legacy media. And I've actually been very impressed to see across the years that the likes of NPR and a few other places have said without hunters, you lose out on conservation. So some people get it. They're open-minded, but is the vast majority of, let's say, people who are also fellow journalists or writers like me, do they totally see it yet? Not entirely, but I think we're working slowly, but surely to get them to understand. And I think people also recognize that you can't replace Pittman Robertson with backpackers and hiker excise taxes. (laughs) There's no way. I mean, selfishly, I want us to be able to still be the primary funders of conservation, but it's you can't compete with what we generate through excise taxes collected on firearms, ammunition, licenses, things mm. of that sort. And Memo's also expensive. I know yeah. now it is, <laughs> especially now. Yeah. yeah. But I, yeah. I think we are starting to win the war. It's just a matter of, are there going to be people with big platforms who can receive it? And I know Joe Rogan is probably one of the biggest people. He's always name dropped as one of the most under uh, one of the most, let's say receptive to hunting. Cause he goes hunting too. 
And so people like that who have vehicles to influence millions of people have to open their shows more to people who maybe tackle different aspects. I would love to see some bear guys go on Joe Rogan more or a similar podcast like that or mainstream media and you can, or even local TV, whatever option is available and you can showcase, Hey, this is the real face of hunting. We're not bloodthirsty killers. And we don't want to see the bear any worse off than anyone else who claims to support the bear too. We just have a different solution. So here's our perspective. And I think also one way, it's kind of a sinister view, but the one way for people to understand the problem, let's say, of a lack of management for apex predators like bears or wolves is you have to have, let's say, a temporary program where you temporarily borrow some of those species, you bring them to major cities, you see the havoc that they wreak, hopefully not harming people, but you need to have them prowl. I well, have they, seen... they already have that experiment going on in California. Mountain lions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I'm saying like New York City and D.C., we had a yearling black bear in Arlington, which is an immediate suburb of Washington, D.C. And that mm-hmm. scared people. And a little bear was out there running and they had no idea how to react. <laughs> They're like, oh, my gosh, so cute. But, oh, my gosh, so dangerous. What do I do? Do I hide in my house? And I so I go pet it. That's what half of them do. <laughs> yeah. It's true. I don't think that yeah, a bear. Oh, I'm just going to pet that. The, the Disney effect has fully yes. taken hold. And now all of a sudden you can go cuddle the thing. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. No. And look at New Jersey. We've seen even stateside, much like you guys were discussing about Africa. Governor Jersey- Dumb Dumb up there. Oh, What's his name? Murphy? Dumpy? Murphy. Dumbass? He's specific. He's one of the few people I've ever seen campaign on an anti-hunting platform. I think he's one of the first major really? candidates to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, to wow. be a governor to campaign, I have to go back and, and look. But in recent memory, I've never seen anyone, Democrat or Republican, have an anti-hunting platform like he does. And he's very proud of it. And he got his game department to go on board. I think the scientists there were very dismayed with his decision, but they had to go along with it. And maybe mm. there were some willing people who said, no, let's let's do what, what the governor, governor says. And they were saying that the black bear is endangered. There's no mm. such evidence of it. No, you- New Jersey has the highest black bear uh, yes. population per per square mile like the population density is higher than any other state it's a tiny state but they got a lot of bears right Uh, all right we're going to take a quick break we'll come back and we'll pick ryan's brain on destination waterfowl hunts uh, both domestically and internationally because he's done it all Uh, so i want to discuss that among other things that segment brought to you by vortex optics and as i've told you don't forget 10 percent off any Vortex Optic, when you shop at eurooptic.com. Spotting scope, rifle scope, binos, rangefinder, you name it, 10% off with my promo code LONESTAR10 when you check out at eurooptic.com. We'll be right back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. It's been too long. who's right or who is wrong. Cable here, and if you're like me, you probably enjoy bold flavors and cuisines. And nobody does Cajun and Creole better than Chris's Specialty Foods in Frisco. Their forte includes specialty sausages, boudins, and andouille, pre-cooked soups, gumbos, and sides, where all you have to do is heat it up. What about high-quality steaks, smoked and fried turkeys, turduckins, and turduckin rolls for the holidays, plus gift boxes. Storefront conveniently located off Dallas Parkway in Frisco, or shop online at chrisspecialtyfoods.com and have it delivered to your door. Hey, y'all, it's Jeff Foxworthy, and thanks for listening to my buddy Cable Smith on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Here I go, back in life, to head down that road. And I know this life for me will beat on my soul. But I still have my pride in nothing. All right, 
Little Eli Young Band bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you. Thanks for dropping by as we've still got uh, Gabriella Hoffman and Ryan Bassham here uh, for our roundtable discussion today. We'll get back into that momentarily. This segment, though, is proudly brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. Unapologetically patriotic, veteran-owned and operated They've got a roast for everybody. Light, medium, dark, no sweat. They've got multiples of each. They've got uh, K-cups. They've got instant packets, perfect for the backcountry, like that uh, Wyoming elk hunt I'm going on next week. Um, And they've got the coolest swag around. Caps, t-shirts, hoodies, you name it. You can find it all at blackriflecoffee.com. Oh, and use that promo code LONESTAR20 at checkout to uh, get yourself a little discount. All right. Uh, well, Ryan, Gabby, thanks for sticking around. I wanted to focus now on destination waterfowl hunts, Ryan, as you've traveled the world uh, from you know a waterfowler's perspective, a lot of it for specific species. And so going back to the origin of today's conversation with uh, APHIS blocking the importation of legally killed ducks and geese from Canada back into the U.S., uh, where does Canada stack up as a waterfowling destination man that that's kind of tough depending on what's important to you i think in your hunting experience mm-hmm. um i would say that if you're not too enamored with culture and differentiation in waterfowl species um and you're just looking for a, a good hunt that presents good numbers based on the costs and then the value you're getting in return canada ranks pretty high up i mean there's not many places you can uh go that you can go and have that type of experience. Um, that being said, <laughs> when you start looking at places like Argentina, Pakistan, and um, I would even throw, you know, at certain times, Mexico and yeah, and Mexico into the mix, those three from a volume standpoint with a differentiation of species, it's, and the cultural variety there. I mean, it's hard to beat those three. Um, but Canada's in a top five for sure. I mean, there's just so many places around the world you can go and, and have a waterfowl hunting experience. It really depends on what you want out of that experience, but I still put Canada top five easy. Hmm. And a lot of people may be going, well, how many other places are there? But I mean, you know, as I'm kind of on this road to collect a hundred waterfowl species around the world. And in that endeavor, like I'm going to have to hit like 15 plus countries just to, to maybe get to that number. And so there's a lot of places in the world you can go. Canada's still right up there at the top and there's so much history and success around the conservation efforts there. All those reasons put it high at the list. So to protect it and make sure we can still, you know, be able to enjoy that and, and do the ethical thing with the meat that we harvest there is, is highly important. I, uh, I, I do have an Argentina trip booked. I haven't, I haven't been previously, uh, but I'm definitely going where nice. I can do the dove and ducks do the combo. Nice. Um, I'm going to do a, a duck hunt in Africa uh, when I'm there on my next safari in May. And um, it's very different, though, because and, and I actually on my last safari, I had a guy from Egypt there with yeah. me and he was like, oh, yeah, we just bait the crap out of them. I yeah. said, really? And he goes, yeah, we shoot like 20. And I was yeah. like, like, that seems a little unethical. He goes, but here's the thing. Nobody in Egypt duck hunts. So, right. again, population level. Mm-hmm. it's a drop in the bucket yeah i'm killing right. 20 a day for a two-week season or whatever exactly but there's just such a small uh demographic that actually does it same thing in africa 
Carl was like, yep. nobody duck hunts here. Nobody, no, you know, nobody cares about hunting birds. No. Very, very, very few people. And, and the gun regulations that some of those countries have, it's, it's hard to even have, you know, a, a shotgun in some of these places mm-hmm. and access well, Australia, to you have to, you have to use a over under. Correct. It has like to be a double no semi-automatic no semis. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's much more difficult, but um, Africa, you're going to love that. That's a sleeper waterfowl hunt. Cool. It's one of my favorites. Too. I've seen, I mean, I've seen it's probably ducks. my top I couldn't five name. The, they have a black one that seemed like with a yellow bill. that looks pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I forgot the name of that one. There's like eight or nine species you can get just in South Africa. Um, so you've got your Egyptian goose, spur wing geese. I shot an Egyptian um, goose in East Texas. Did you? Oh, that's right. Because up at Lake Texoma, didn't a bunch get out of a Avery or something? And it's something, like, dude, we were in, just uh, like gone we were in totally wild. And yeah. we're duck hunting and two of them just lit right into the decoy spread. Bam, bam. That's awesome. both. The dog brought them back. I had no idea what they were like. No, I, I thought they were that's like, awesome. Like, 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 uh, um, specs. Right. And at first. Cause it was like, you know, it was couldn't really make them out. It was a little foggy. And then here the dog brings this thing back with these pink feet. And I'm like, what? <laughs> in and the hell is that doesn't doesn't count against your limit no, no. so that's yeah. also kind of fun but yeah. no there yeah there's like eight nine species over there and um some are like there is some volume hunting in africa and there's some pure just specimen collection over there too that you don't hunt them in, in volume but africa is a great place to go mm. outside of the plains game and dangerous game where is the where's your number one destination in the united states Oof. Just oh man, it uh, that depends. Um, I always go I back to where King it started for me. With, I know like, it's. Wish, I want to get one of those eventually. That that experience is amazing, but you got to realize like it's more about the adventure. Like you're in the mm-hmm. Bering Sea, not far away from Russia, hunting these things on a 400 square you know foot rock. I mean it's um or square mile rock. Excuse me. It's it's a totally different kind of thing and. You can only, as a, as a non-resident to Alaska, you're only allowed four King Eider the entire seven days you're there. And so it's mm-hmm. purely specimen collection. So if you're into the adventure and having a wild adventure, man, that's it. Um, but man, like growing up in Northeast Texas, um, especially on our family farm, like hunting mallards in the timber is always going to be high, high, high on the list for me. That's, that's where it started for me. And it's always going to be my first love. So we don't get mallards in Texas anymore, right? The last two years, you know, you know, so bad. Now, now you've moved up to Montana where you get, I know. get a lot of mallards. But Spoiled. We used to get, get, get a lot of mallards. But mallards. If we, we get a cold to, winter, yeah. they'll come back. But it's just been it, it'll happen. Time. I think we're just in this weird cycle, and it'll. I mean, I remember hearing my uncles talk about the '80s, how it was so bad, and I think that's where we're at again. And maybe it'll cycle back through. But there's so many good hunts across across the U.S. up and down every flyway. I think. Uh, it's hard to beat a good mallard hunt in the timber, no matter what state you're in. Um, but pure adventure, King Eider is awesome. Hunting on the East Coast for the variety of um, sea ducks is, mm-hmm. is a blast as well. Um, and I mean, I don't want to say too much about Montana, but there's some pretty good goose on here. Um, <laughs> it's a good time. So it's <laughs> a reason yeah. I live here. But uh, but yeah, that and then uh, we haven't talked about Mexico. Mexico is pretty special too, especially down there on the Pacific side. Um, a lot of species differentiation and uh, generous numbers as far as limits. So, mm-hmm. okay. Right on, right on. Um, Gabby, is there anything else behind the scenes that, that you wanted to, uh, point out as far as what, what we've been talking about here today? I don't think there's anything currently. I mean, you just have to watch what's happening, uh, 
I guess for the remainder of the year in state legislatures too. And we have to see what Congress cooks up. They may try to throw some stuff last minute. They want to get Rawa in and I still need to do some research. I've heard mixed opinions about Rawa from different stakeholders, from different people. Some okay, people what want is it. that? I don't, I'm not familiar with Rawa. So Me either, it, yeah. Yeah. So Rawa, if I understand correctly, it would be to bolster. I think they want to do something with um, improving Pittman Roberts and maybe modernizing it on a permanent basis. Mm. Like I said, I need to read the specifics more mm. myself. And so they said, I think upwards of a billion dollars may be able to be generated for conservation with some of the improvements with Rawa. Uh, but do research for yourself. I don't know if I'm confidently speaking about it, but that may be something they're going to try to pass. I think it passed in one chamber of Congress and the other still has to do it. So it, it remains to be seen if that gets passed. And like I said, there's different opinions on you it. Know what, I, what I'm for is for um, individual conservation bills, not yeah. BS that's shoehorned yeah. into, <laughs> yeah. into right. a, a right. climate change right. uh, yeah, bill exactly. misidentified yeah. as the Inflation Reduction Act. Right. Oh uh, my so I got a blacklist going so far. Uh, Trout Unlimited, uh, Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership and backcountry hunters and anglers all supported that. And to me, it's laughable. Yeah, we got a little kickback. Here's a few billion dollars for conservation. Great. Yay. Rah, rah, rah. But guess what? Uh, all this other stuff about climate change and what is it doing? What is that actually doing to reduce inflation? Why those groups are supporting that? Uh, yeah. Which, you know, something mm -hmm. that could potentially bankrupt the country. It's certainly going to make life harder for Americans. Uh, so why we're celebrating it, I don't know. So give me the standalone conservation bills. Don't shoehorn that crap into. Uh, beca right. Because, you know, and they do it so that everybody feels like they got a little bit of a win. <laughs> but I want a big win. I don't want a, a little tiny slice mm -hmm. of pie. You know, I want the whole thing uh, for conservation anyway. But I was going to um, add to Ryan's comments about I've only done duck hunting once, so I'm not an expert by any means. But when I went... I went when it was the bomb cyclone in 2018, January, and we were supposed to go to a WMA in Virginia beach. It was frozen solid. Mm. So we couldn't access it. So my friends and I who run a really cool restaurant in Virginia beach called the redhead Bay cafe. It's a duck themed uh, brunch spot, really good spot there. <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're diehard duck hunters, of course. And so they were like, we want to take you on your first duck hunt. So we wake up early. I've never woken up at three o'clock in the morning for a hunt ever. <laughs> and I did. And we had two different Labradors with us and we had a really excellent guide. And so we got there and watching the sunrise over uh, the Kuratik sound. So it was like this, the Kuratik sound kind of separated us from the Atlantic Ocean. So it was really close to the ocean, comparatively speaking. And we were targeting sea ducks and it was really cool. And I got one duck. I shot it on top surface. It was a ruddy duck. So I can oh, cool. say that I have successfully harvested a duck. Got one back here somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So it was really cool to get that. And they gave me some harvested goose and other meat to take home with me back to Virginia. And it was great, you know, when I was still in the infancy of my hunting journey, but it was mm -hmm. really great. I wish I could do more hunting, but it, uh, for ducks, it's a little harder to do it because in Virginia, on the Eastern coast, especially the Southeast, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but some duck hunters are quite crazy where if you claim a spot on a, a public land area and you, you have it, someone will torch your blind. They will torch oh, yeah. your blind. They'll go crazy. And that's not a deterrent for me, but I was like, Oh my gosh, they're crazy. Why are they doing this? <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, it's just harder to get to some of the duck spots. Maybe I just don't know the right people to go duck hunting with. I have been offered before, but that uh, lead didn't materialize. And I don't want to, in, you know, impose myself on a private duck hunting club, but I do have some waterfowler friends. They're just not here on the East coast. So maybe that's the problem, but I have lots of opportunities to deer hunt. But in the one trip that I went, I was successful and I got to see a lot of different ducks, a lot of different sea ducks, 
uh, harvested. And then um, my friend who had a uh, swan tag was able to get a swan too. So that oh, was nice. kind of awesome. cool. Yeah. Heck yeah. No, that's fantastic. I, well, I hope you can t- I mean, you're in such a historical place for, for yeah. waterfowl hunting and just how the, you know, the market days and, and all the things they did, you're, you're in a cool spot. So take up as many of those offers as you can. It's special yeah. over there. Yeah. I didn't get think- a elk tag this year, unfortunately with our first uh. season, but hopefully next year or the year yeah. succeeding. Well, that's cool that, that, you know, going back to the sustainable use conservation model. I mean, that's why you have an elk season now. So yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, do you think Ryan just, this just like crossed my mind a second ago, but you know, you always see these pictures of these market hunters with these punt guns. <laughs> do you think in 1910 when they're sitting out there and they're, uh, what were those boats that they use called? Uh, oh, gosh, they were using like pirogues and different kinds yeah. of skiffs. And do you think they had any idea what they were doing? Like from a, from a population, like no. the negative impact that, that, Hey, we could, there's not an unlimited supply of these things. Right yeah. now, I, I, I mean, look at the same thing. Bison here, they're in the making West, a check, you know. Right? They, so, you, I don't think they understood. I, yeah. I think too, like, if we look back at that era and the limitations on communication broadly from state to state, across mm-hmm. the nation, mm-hmm. across the world, they didn't have access to to the education, or maybe even biologists at the time looking into those things like we do today. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I don't think they had any clue. They were just like anybody in those times, I'm sure, like, how do I feed my family? This is a job. And these are some tools that I can create to make my job that much more efficient and taking care of my family. So So weird though, to see, to think about like, Oh, we caught, we killed 180 canvas bags today. Oh yeah. my gosh. <laughs> like, I know. Like you hear these numbers and see the photos. It's like, oh my goodness. It only a took guy. two shots. Yeah. There's a guy on Instagram and I, I'm going to foul up his name. Um, it's like RK Graves or something like that. He only posts about all these historical, like waterfowl places. And, and he's, he's an historian of sorts for mm-hmm. waterfowl hunting in a very specific part of the country. But when you look back, and, and look at his posts and the photos he finds and the information and stories he puts out there. It's, it's amazing. And these people are just trying to do their job, you know, mm-hmm. it's oh, yeah. fascinating. Well, uh, if you look at the menu and I've mentioned this on the show before, but like the, uh, Waldorf Astoria restaurant, that was mm-hmm. there in the hotel. I forget the name of the restaurant, but, uh, if you look at a menu from like 1915, the price of canvas back was more than filet mignon. Yeah. So that tells you that the, the, the demand was there. People wanted it. Was it was there. Yeah. It was there. Yeah. Crazy. Um, well, guys, hey, I certainly have enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for, for making time for me. Uh, Gabby, have fun in Colorado on vacation. Thank you. Ryan, good luck with your elk season. Where Thanks. are you headed? Uh, I leave for Alberta, which is not a very well-known elk place, but uh, we're going to be hunting an area that's got some pretty big bulls and then straight back to Montana and hunt here in my backyard solo for a week or so or however long it takes. So cool. Awesome. Well, good luck, my friend. Thanks. Appreciate it, guys. That was fun. Oh, hey, give us your your, uh, social media handle so folks can follow along. Mine is just at Ryan Bassam. Pretty simple. Gabby? Gabriella underscore Hoffman on Instagram and just Gabby Hoffman. You can denote it by a blue check. Super easy to find. And uh, yeah, give me one of those Gabby. 
It's because we, we put too much hunting content out. You can't no, go with us. No, it's not that. It's I, I was able to get it as a journalist, but they, ah, need, there it is. They, need, they need to make it a lot more accessible for people who have media mentions and other stuff, notability. But they give it to Bachelor and Bachelorette contestants who do nothing. And you guys are yeah. deserving of that. <laughs> no, I mean, I tried one so time funny. and then they, they never processed it. And I'm sure oh. sure it was because like, oh, pro gun, pro hunting, conservative. <laughs> No check mark for you. No. <laughs> well, I, I wear that as a badge of honor. Though. I can't get the damn thing. It means well, I'm doing something right. Connect. Yeah. Uh, oh, and the District of Conservation podcast. As yes. Well, so. Yeah. Everyone check that out. We have an episode this week about the UK actually abandoning crazy climate policies for oil and gas production. And I was going to do something on Queen Elizabeth, hmm. uh, but she was a really cool hunter. And it's yeah. you know, kind of sad. I that didn't she even know away. that. Yeah, yeah for sure. She's she been was so old for my entire life that I like. I never, <laughs> I never knew. Like, but that's uh, like a huge part of. Oh gosh, we're trying to wrap this up. But yeah, that's right. what's crazy. The royal family has so much history in hunting. So yeah. I've got family living in London right now, and so I've been able to go and visit them, and um, just being able to tour and understand more of the history there. Like, oh my gosh, like the royal families and their history with hunting is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be really cool to do. A, a deep dive into the queen's experience as a hunter. I saw her a life. post today where she was, she shot a deer at her first deer at 19 years old or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, seems like a lifelong sportswoman mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Well, cool stuff guys. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Have a great fall. Thanks guys. You too. Thank you. You as well. <laughs> so there you have it. Gabriella Hoffman and Ryan Bassham, a great round table discussion today. And uh, FYI, the well APHIS reversed their decision the day after we taped that so we taped that in the middle of the week and literally the uh, animal and plant health inspection service i guess uh the backlash was so overwhelming from both canada and u.s hunters and conservationists and groups like sci uh, ducks unlimited so on and so forth really putting the pressure on them that they they backtracked so a big win there, and I thought there was so much other great info that I just wanted to go ahead and air the conversation uh, in its uh, original form. So, big win. Happy about that. Uh, we were hoping that this news would come out, and I'm certainly uh, grateful and excited that common sense and science prevailed. That uh, seems like a rare thing in 2022, but uh, a big win here. Uh, that segment was brought to you by Armasite Thermal and Night Vision Optics. Uh, Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. Thanks to Gabby and Ryan, as well as our other guests today, uh, the Exotic Wildlife Association Executive Director, Charlie Seal. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Till next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Take me through the